Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. So I want to thank my guest again uh, for coming for our second segment. This is going to be a very exciting and interesting episode because we're going to talk about the period of time shortly after uh, Benson uh, leaves office and uh, somebody that he encounters, a book that he encounters, uh, that really kind of changes the trajectory of where he was going politically. But before we go with that, I just want to tell a little bit about our author, Matthew L. Harris. He's a professor of history at Colorado State University, Pablo. He is the author of The Founding Fathers and the Debate Over Religion in Revolutionary America. Uh, this is one of the books that he uh, edited called Thunder from the Right. We are talking about the book uh, Watchmen in the Tower, Ezra Taft Benson, and the Making of the Mormon Right. So let's... Uh, let me get this view here so we get it. There we go. So there's the book, Ezra Taft Benson, Making the Mormon Right. And eventually I'm going to have a copy in my bookshelf, right? <laughs> we need a copy. So either way, uh, so basically what happens is uh, in 1958, there's this book that comes out uh, called The Politician. And it was written by a gentleman by the name of Robert Welch. So tell us a little bit about the man who wrote the book and a little bit about the book. So Robert Welch is, uh, he's born in 1899 um, from an old Southern plantation in North Carolina. He's born the same year as Ezra Taft Benson. And um, he's a brilliant man. He had uh, graduated from college at a very young age. He went to Harvard Law School and then he clashed with one of the most famous of the Harvard Law faculty, a guy named Felix Frankfurter. And I'm a university professor and I love students who I don't mind at all when students push back on my ideas or something I say. And, and uh, as long as it's civil and respectful and I try to exemplify those same virtues towards my students as I expect them to do towards me and to others. But Welsh wasn't one of those guys. When Frankfurt would say something, he would say, you're wrong. <laughs> he would just challenge him, you know, it wasn't civil at all. Well, anyway, if you know anything about Frankfurter, um, the man was larger than life. And uh, just a quick story about Frankfurter. There was a scholar who just passed away a few years ago um, named Leonard Levy, and he wrote two books that won two Pulitzer Prizes. So two Pulitzer Prizes, that's how big Levy was. Well, when Levy was going to graduate school, he asked Frankfurter for a recommendation. He had somehow met the, the crusty Harvard law professor. And, um, Frankfurter wrote, to whom it may concern, Levy may make something of himself one day. Sincerely, Frankfurter. And that was it. He may make something of himself one day. And of course, anyone in academia who knows Frankfurter's reputation, this was a glowing endorsement. <laughs> it took him two seconds to have his secretary type. But anyway, that's his personality. And here you have Robert Wilson, you know, clashing with him in class. And there was no way on God's green earth Welch was going to win this fight. And so Welch just quit. Frankfurter just forced him out. He quit. And he went to business with his brother, um, as I recall. And uh, Welch um, founds this candy company that will produce the caramel lollipop, the sugar daddy, which is one of the most, I remember eating it as a kid. I don't eat it. I don't eat much candy now. But as a kid, I, I would have a sugar daddy. And anyway, that's Welsh's, that's his signature candy that made him millions. And so when he was in his 50s, as I recall, 
he decides to retire a wealthy, wealthy man. And in 1958, he turns his attention to the booming Cold War. He's disturbed by liberal politics at the time, the New Deal in particular. Franklin Roosevelt is sort of the shadow over every conservative this time, and liberal for that matter. And uh, so he wants to form a, 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 an organization that will fight against communism. And so he gives a series of talks in 1958 in which he criticizes Rose, or Eisenhower for failing to roll back the New Deal uh, subsidies and also failure to essentially shrink the size of the federal government. He's a Republican. This is what a good Republican is supposed to do. Well, obviously Eisenhower doesn't do that. Eisenhower wrote a letter to his brother, Milton. And he said that, I'll paraphrase, he said that so many, dear Milton, so many conservatives expect me to roll back the New Deal. But as I've got into office, I realize I cannot do that for people rely on these, these programs. And if these rich, oilmen in Texas, that's what he calls them. These rich oilmen in Texas, like H.L. Hunt, think that we can roll back New Deal subsidies. They are wrong and they are stupid. That's what he says. So Roosevelt, or, um, Eisenhower has this keen sense of what people, what he can do and what he can't do. And uh, so Welch is intensely critical of, um, Frank, of Eisenhower for failing to roll back the New Deal. He said he would but he changes his tune. And Barry Goldwater, another famous conservative of the era, he called Eisenhower's administration a dime store New Deal. I mean, it's like New Deal light, but it's still a New Deal. And that's not what conservatives want of their Republican presidents. So Welch is um, critical of Eisenhower and he meets with some wealthy businessmen in the late 1950s in which he lays out a number of his ideas critical of of Eisenhower. He's also critical of some decisions he had made during World War II, his failure to open up a second front, and there are some other things. And um, he says that Eisenhower is a politician, and I'll show your reviewers this, the title of this book. It's a, it's a private manuscript that he writes. Again, private, it's not meant to be public. And he lays out all of his charges against Eisenhower, he, how he blunders the war, how he fails to roll back the New Deal, but he makes something, uh, a claim or an allegation against Eisenhower, the former president, that will just reverberate throughout conservative circles. He calls this revered five-star president or five-star general turned president, he calls him a commie. And he says his brother, Milton, a close advisor was also a commie or a commie sympathizer. He says that uh, John Foster Dulles, the beloved secretary of state who just had passed away uh, in 1959, calls him a commie. And then he calls Alan Dulles, John Foster's brother, who's head of the CIA, calls him a commie. And so these are explosive allegations. And in the spring of 1961, when Benson leaves Washington, when the term is over, the second term, Eisenhower is now an emeritus president and Benson's now an emeritus cabinet secretary, he comes across this explosive manuscript. And his son, Reed, had discovered it and shared it with his father. And it, it went something like this. Dad, you got to read this. This is incredible. This will blow your mind. And Benson as a conservative, Benson as a conservative was always, always uncomfortable with some of Eisenhower's policies. And even in general conference, 
he would let out these cryptic references to beware of those in government who create this program and that program. Well, my hell, he's talking about Eisenhower, but he doesn't mention him by name. Beware of those in government. And he's also very critical of Ike. Now I say very critical in private. He doesn't do this in public. Uh, Benson's critical of Eisenhower when Eisenhower creates the, they didn't call it this at the time, but this is what he creates. We, we later call it this, but the Department of Education. And I forget what it was called in the 50s, but in the 1970s, Carter changes it to the Department of Education. But Eisenhower creates this new government bureaucracy because the Russians are just moving far ahead of us in this space race, this Cold War, and we've got to be able to have a, a federal agency to oversee research and development at our nation's universities. Benson sees this not as a Cold War necessity, but as just another vestige of a sprawling bureaucracy. It's the same way he sees civil rights. Why do we need civil rights? If we have civil rights, we'll just have to have uh, another federal bureaucracy to oversee it. He doesn't like any of this stuff. This is his position in the 50s. He's also reading um, uh, Jagger Hoover, who had been the FDI director since 1922. And, and Jagger Hoover has some conspiratorial notions of his own about the influence of communism. He's also, um, Benson's also influenced by Reuben Clark. We talked about the protocols of the elders of Zion. They exchanged these, these, um, these this protocols pamphlet in 1957 when um, Benson's still in the government. And he, he uh, receives the pamphlet from Reuben Clark in, in Salt Lake City and he reads it and he says, this is great stuff. And then he sends it back to Reuben Clark. Anyway, um, Benson was also concerned about uh, Jews in the government. He was influenced by the protocols. He thought that there were too many Jews in both the Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower administrations. And I want to just pause for a moment. I think all of us, myself included, you, Stephen, your listeners, we're all the sum total of our influences, the people who have entered our lives, whether for good or for ill, right? Benson hasn't had much experience with Jews. He grew up in Whitney, Idaho, where there were hardly any Jews, if at all. He didn't have any experience with black people. There were no black people in Whitney, Idaho. It's a lily white, bucolic Mormon farming community. There are very few black people in Salt Lake City when he moves there in the 1940s to assume his duties as an apostle. There are very few Jews in Salt Lake City. So it's a very cloistered worldview and it will gradually enlarge, of course, as he travels the world in his apostolic ministry, and also as he serves in um, Eisenhower's cabinet. But uh, prior to that, though, his view was, was very limited. And so when he goes to Washington and he starts to work with some Black people, and mostly Jews, he's just, he's not happy about it. This is, they just, they're not principled like him. They come from a different worldview. And so when he left the office, uh, the cabinet in 1961, Robert Welch gives him a way to understand the experience he had just had, provides a lens by which to look at his boss's administration. And Ezra is just riveted by the politician, just absolutely riveted, so much so that he buys several copies and gives them to his fellow apostles. And he says uh, the same thing that his son said to him. You've got to read this. This will change your life. And um, Ezra made the mistake of giving it to not just the apostles, but the first presidency as well. He made the mistake of giving a copy to a guy named Henry Moyle, this uh, wealthy lawyer who was in the first presidency along with Reuben Clark. And Moyle was a Democrat. 
there were a few of them <laughs> at the time, but he was a Democrat. And, um, and so when uh, Ezra gave Moyle a copy of The Politician, Moyle calls him in and he sits Taft down. That's the nickname they called Ezra. They didn't call him Ezra, uh, but in private it was always Taft. He said, Taft, I am so disappointed in you. How could you betray the president like this? This book is a betrayal. How could you? And I should add that this was a private manuscript and it got leaked out to the press and then they published it. So it, it became public by the early 60s. But so Moyle just rips him a new one. How could you do this? And um, he said, don't worry. I, I won't strip you of all your, your, your um, of, I won't strip you of your income. Mormon apostles don't get paid a lot of money. They get a living stipend. And they make their money by serving on boards, uh, church-owned companies. So they put the apostles on the boards and they make some extra income that way. So he tells them, I won't, I won't take you off the boards. You can still have your income, but I'm very disappointed in you. And so uh, I guess the question, Stephen, if you want me to address this now is, I've been asked this and I think it's a good question to ask. Benson served with Eisenhower for eight long bloody years. How in the hell could he think he's a communist? He wrote John Foster Dulles the most sincere, the most moving letters when, when Foster Dulles was um, uh, gravely ill in 1959. I mean, it was genuine, almost to the point of you know, tears, the way that his, I'm praying for you, I'll put your name on my the prayer roll at my temple, just all of this stuff. And Foster Dulles is part of this too. He's also a commie. How could Ezra believe in any of this stuff? It is just soul crushing. And I've thought about this a lot. And this is a five-star general. You're calling a communist sympathizer. It's crazy. And I thought about this a lot. And the only conclusion I can think of is that Benson was so intensely hurt by Eisenhower not coming to his defense during his cabinet years. Um, you know, Benson's human. And he felt like the president just betrayed him. And so Benson just didn't, didn't scrutinize any of this stuff. You know, I have this imaginary dialogue in my head in which Benson would have read this book, The Politician, and he would have written Robert Welsh and he would have said, you're wrong. I served with him. He's a good man. He doesn't have a communist bone in his body. But Eisenhower or Benson doesn't do this. And so he sends out the politician to his family and friends. He orders it for the church history archives. He gives them away to Christmas gifts to LDS church mission presidents. He's, he's just, this is like kid the candy shop, just giving away copies. And um, I have all the Birch letters from Benson and from Welch. And I have the receipts of all the, when he would buy the copies, they would send him back. I have all of this stuff. And um, Benson was so taken in by Robert Welch. He met him for the first time in the spring of 1961, just a few months after he left Washington. And that's when he also became acquainted with the politician about the same time. And uh, Welch asked Benson to speak at the five-year anniversary of the Birch Society. This would have been in 1963. So it was founded in 58 by a bunch of wealthy businessmen 
some of whom were academics. Clarence Mannion was the dean of the University of Notre Dame Law School. So these aren't just like, you know, these fringes weirdos in the corner. These are on paper, they're respectable people, working professionals, some of whom are in academics, some of whom are politicians. And um, anyway, so in 1963, Welch invites um, Ezra Taft Benson. He said, can you come speak at the five-year anniversary of the Birch Society? And we'd be honored to have you. Now, this is a government person. Nobody in the cabinet has shown any interest in the Birch Society. We'll talk about why in just a moment, I'm sure. Um, so Benson agrees to it. Uh, the church president, David O. McKay, gives his assent. OK, you can go do it. But ben, McKay has no idea what he's going to say. And so Benson goes to LA, where they honor the Burt Society, where they honor Welch. And um, he says something that he would later regret, which is Benson said that there are people within the government who are communists. That's all he says, essentially. After the talk was over, a New York Times reporter goes up to him and he says, look, I read The Politician. Are you referring to Eisenhower? Do you think he's a communist? Now just pause for a moment. What a hell of a great story, right? You've got a former cabinet member uh, who's being asked if his former boss, a five-star, is a commie. And Benson, remember I told you, he's not a politician. The guy, <laughs> he's as honest as the day it's long. Benson looks at the reporter and he says, he says, uh, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna really answer that. Now, that's crazy. You've just been asked a direct question if your former boss, President Eisenhower is a communist and you're not gonna answer it. So his refusal to answer is tacit agreement that he believes in Welch's allegations that Ike's a commie. And so the next day in the newspaper, the reporter blows it up on the headlines that former Secretary Benson will not refute Welch's accusation of Ike being a commie. And it's a disaster. There's a Mormon guy. Uh, I wanna connect this story to, to um, Ike if I can for a moment, because Ike hears about this. And um, there's a Mormon guy, a congressman from Idaho named Ralph Harding. And Ralph Harding was, I think he was one or two time congressman. He got defeated because of Benson. We'll get to that in a sec. But Congressman Harding's a Democrat. And El Ezra Taft Benson was his favorite general authority. When Ralph Harding uh, went on an LDS church mission in 1949, so this is long before he was in the Congress in the early 60s, um, as a young missionary, uh, Benson had set him apart, gave him a special blessing, that's code word in Mormon land for special blessing. And so Elder Benson, the apostle, set him apart, and Harding said that Benson was his favorite apostle. Well, as a Democrat and as a concerned um, citizen, Harding thought it was just ridiculous to think that a high-ranking church leader could call the president, the former president, a commie, or at least imply it. And so Harding stays up all night in September of 1963, writing this skewering uh, address that he was going to give on the floor of the US Congress the next day. Just bad-mouthing Benson, his, his former favorite general authority, uh, pushing back hard that Eisenhower's a commie. And Harding knows that this is perilous to do this for two reasons. One, Benson has a massive following in Idaho. Now he's from Idaho and Harding's from Idaho. And a lot of people in Idaho are Latter-day Saints. So he knows um, it could cost him 
his job if he if he gives this speech. He also knows that you're not supposed to criticize the Lord's anointed, even if they have a political hat. And so Harding sends a his 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 uh, his address. He'd stayed up all night writing it. He sends it to his stake president, a guy like a guy named Milo D. Smith, who worked for Benson as his secretary, his top assistant in the agricultural department. So just pause for a moment. Here you have Milo D. Smith who worked with Benson closely in the agricultural department, and he is now a state president and he's over Ralph Harding in Washington, DC. Milo D. Smith says, you should give this talk. It'll be the best thing you can do and it'll be good for the church. And I wish I could interview Milo D. Smith because he must've had a transformation because Milo D. Smith was one of the point persons that Benson had put in charge to get rid of Wolf Leginski. So and I, can I, I just wanna interject something real quick. And so in our first episode, I made a point to tell our viewers that um, we, uh, both of us actually have in our background, family and acquaintances that were sympathetic to the John Birch Society or were John Birch Society members. And I just want people to know, because if you're coming across this episode and you hadn't seen our first episode, um, we're, we're just given the history here. Now, I think it's really important. About a third of the book, or more, almost, yeah, is, is the end notes. So if you're a fan of Ezra Taft Benson and you're sympathetic to the John Birch Society, uh, you may not like Matthew's conclusions, but the information's invaluable. If you want to know uh, Ezra Taft Benson better, get this book and you can check the footnotes and the sources as well. Um, so I just want to get that out of the way. But let's get back to where we were talking about because this is truly fascinating. Yeah, that's important to, to, to know. I, my father and his family are from Arizona and Big Bird Society, they're Latter-day Saints in Arizona. And they were my 90-year-old um, aunt who just passed a few years ago. I didn't realize that she was still having birch meetings in her home well into the 1990s, even after the Cold War. So that's, that's a little bit of my family's background. My father was never really into it because we, we lived in Maine and it was sort of removed from it. But I'm certain that if we had we stayed in Arizona where, where I was born, um, that he may have been active along with his siblings. But anyway, um, so uh, Milo, D, Milo D. Smith is the point person to get rid of Wolf Leginski. And, and I, we talked in the previous episode, for your listeners who didn't hear that one yet, I talked in the previous episode about how Ezra Tav Benson had fired this Russian-born Jew from his department thinking he was a communist and it backfired. There was no evidence that he was aligned with communism and Eisenhower was embarrassed by it. Anyway, um, but Milo D. Smith was, was front and center of this entire operation. And now in 1963, he's telling Ralph Harding, you should go ahead and deliver this talk that will just skewer Apostle Benson on the floor of the US Congress. And I wish Milo D. Smith was, a, was alive because he's, I would have loved to have interviewed him. The other person that Harding sends to talk to is Ezra Taft Benson's biggest nemesis in church leadership, a guy named Hubie Brown, who was in the first presidency in the early 1960s. Reuben Clark had died and uh, Hubie Brown had replaced him. And uh, Brown grew up in, or uh, was born in Salt Lake City, or at least the Salt Lake Territory as they called it in those days, or Utah Territory. Uh, but had spent his formative years in Canada. 
So he was not a conspiracist. He was a diehard Democrat. He supported Franklin Roosevelt in the New Deal, which is really, really rare because most Mormon leaders are Republicans. And even some of the ones who were Democrats, like Heber J. Grant, the church president was a Democrat, was not a Roosevelt Democrat. And so anyway, um, but Brown thought that Benson and the Burt Society were damaging the church. And so Benson was way too political in his sermons. We'll get into that, I'm sure, in just a little bit. So Harding sends the, the, the message or the speech to Brown, um, who's the first counselor in the first presidency under David O. McKay. And Brown writes him back and says the same thing that Milo D. Smith says, you could do the church a real favor by giving this address. And so Harding does. He gives the address. And of course, the newspapers cover it, the Washington Post, the New York Times, it's everywhere. And Harding does something that will uh, shine a bright light on Benson. He sends his address to Eisenhower, who's now retired, living comfortably at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And Benson has, or Eisenhower has no idea that his former secretary has turned on him. No idea. But he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say a word to Ezra. They haven't talked since the cabinet years. And about a year later or so, um, Reed Benson, Ezra's son, joins the John Burt Society and becomes an officer. So this is his employment. And Reed Benson gives this incendiary address in 1965 at Denver, Colorado, not very far from where I live. And um, a reporter asked Reed after the address, he said, do you really think your father believes that Ike's a commie? And Reed says, oh yes. Well, why did he keep him in the cabinet then if Ike's a commie and Benson's not? Oh, my father used him for protective coloration. Or Ike used my father for protective coloration, sorry. Mm -hmm. Now that was a fancy way of saying that he had to put this, keep this straight arrow in the cabinet to throw off the scent. So that was the protective coloration part. Well, anyway, one of Eisenhower's former um, secretaries in Washington had now relocated to Denver and saw this in the Denver Post, the article where it talks about protective coloration, all that stuff. And the former secretary mails the article to Ike at Gettysburg. Now he's already been warned by Harding. And there's another Mormon guy who sent him the same thing, I named J.D. Williams, who was a bishop in the church, liberal Democrat, also a bishop. So Ike had received notice of Harding's uh, speech um, twice over. And now he's getting a third element from his former secretary that Reed Benson's saying that his father really truly believed that Ike was a communist. Well, anyway, so Eisenhower tracks Ezra down and sends him a letter with the newspaper copy and he circles the protective coloration. And all he says in the letter was, or is, I thought you liked me because you admired me. And I thought I liked you, or at least I thought I expressed to you that I admired you. But now you're just saying, I kept you around for protective coloration. So he's calling Ezra out. And Ezra was in Europe at the time um, as, a, as a mission. He was a mission president. That was rare, but it happened. They would have apostles serve as mission presidents. And the reason why they sent Ezra 
uh, in Germany as a mission president in 1965 is to get him the hell out of the country. He was too political. After the Harding disaster, where the newspapers blew it all up, they called him on this mission. Got to get him out of here. Let's, let's hope that he goes over to Germany and he can purge his blood of politics. That's what one senior policy said. So anyway, he's in Europe when Eisenhower learns about what he's been saying. And so he, he wrote Ezra a letter and somehow it made its way to Europe. I guess they forwarded it on from church headquarters. And Ezra wrote him back promptly. He's embarrassed. He's absolutely embarrassed. And he says, I don't know what Reed said, but I'll get to the bottom of it. I'll find out. And I'll get back to you. So I'm in Europe right now. I can't do much about it here. But when I get home, return home to the States, I'll, I'll look into it. Now, this wasn't Ezra Taft Benson's finest hour, because a few weeks after he denied knowing anything about Reed Benson's speech in Denver, Ezra Taft Benson also wrote J. Edgar Hoover a letter calling Ike a commie. And he says, I'll never know why the President Eisenhower had communist sympathies. So this is like three weeks after he wrote Eisenhower's letter. So clearly he believes this stuff, but he's got egg on his face. And for the record, he never wrote back Eisenhower. And you know, there's nothing to say because that's what his son said and that's what he said and believed. But um, the, their relationship becomes strained because of the Burt Society. And when Eisenhower died in 1969, Benson released a statement calling him a great patriot. And as one of his, I'm not a biographer because my book is not a biography, but as one of the scholars that has looked at his life, I conclude that this is his way of showing remorse, that he questioned his patriotism and he felt badly about it in 1969. Yeah, well, it's, uh, <laughs> it is a, it's one of the more remarkable things just to think about how this all happened. And I'm, and I'm so glad you fleshed it out so well, because it's, I think it gives insight into the man and the motivations. And I think that you're studying Ezra Taft Benson um, and his mindset is such an important contribution to this literature because um, it, Ezra Taft Benson was an important 20th century political figure, period. It, was, it wasn't just because he was the, present, the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but he was a significant, very important and consequential person. Now, we got to keep in mind that, so he was a man that uh, both Strom Thurmond and George Wallace were interested in recruiting to have on their ticket, whether he'd be the presidential candidate or the vice presidential candidate. Now, of course, Strom Thurmond um, uh, was was a longtime Democrat, or they were both Democrats, but they were going to run as third party candidates in both these instances. So during this time, uh, because of Ezra's relationship with the John Birch Society and Robert Welch, he does become a rising star in the right. So he has some uh, political capital uh, that he's been able to build up in his own movement uh, within the conservative wings of the Republican Party, as well as outside of it. So just talk a little bit about some of the the political, his political rise actually in the 1960s. Yeah, so a lot of people ask me, you know, why are you, why are you researching Benson? I've done two books on Benson. And the first, as you noted, is a collection of essays from BYU scholars and other scholars who have an interest in Mormon studies. And the second one is, a, is what we call a monograph, just looking at his, his views, how, how he was influenced with his politics and how his politics in turn influenced the church. So people ask me all the time, why Benson? 
Well, for a couple of reasons. One, I grew up with him in the church. He was the LDS church president in the 1980s during my formative years. And so he loomed large in our home. He was on our refrigerator pictures of the Mormon prophet, just as Russell Nelson, the Mormon current Mormon prophet, is on uh, refrigerators in today's homes of Latter-day Saints. Um, so my background, my connection there, he signed my missionary papers. Um, so there's that religious and church connection, but he is a significant thinker in the post-war, post-World War II conservative movement. I had no idea that he was as influential and as big as he was speaking out against anti-communism to anyone who would listen. These are civic groups. These are dental organizations he would speak, dental organizations he would speak to. He would speak with Reverend uh, Carl McIntyre, uh, Reverend Billy Hargis, all of these anti-communist crusaders who were men of the cloth. Benson was right there with them, albeit from the Mormon tradition. And so he's, he's on this speaker's circuit and sometimes he would get permission from his church authorities and sometimes he wouldn't. But he was always speaking out against anti-communism to um, both to Latter-day Saints in the Faith General Conference, which is a biannual uh, event in October and April, and also to civic groups, many of whom were not Latter-day Saints. And because he was known to be such a, um, a conservative uh, politician, um, he became the darling of the far right in the 1960s. And um, there are several movements to enlist his uh, aid to run for the presidency. Now, this is kind of a challenge. And I want to take your readers back to your listeners back to something that's important. When Benson had considered joining the cabinet with Thomas Dewey in 1948, Dewey's a moderate Republican. Benson's a conservative. When Benson goes into Eisenhower's cabinet in 1952, Eisenhower's a moderate Republican. Benson's a conservative. It's in Washington where Benson starts to flirt with the extreme fringy parts of the party, right? J. Edgar Hoover would be one of them. J. Reuben Clark would be one of them. A guy named Cleon Skousen, a Mormon writer, would be one of them. And then, of course, when he aligns himself with the John Birch Society in the early 1960s. So Benson is now moving away from conservative mainstream politics, and he is joining the fringe people on sort of the edges, right? These are the people who think that the civil rights movement is led by communists, that Dr. King's a works for the Kremlin. I mean, this is really, really as fringy as it gets. And Benson is right there with that. And um, just to give you an, an example, uh, Barry Goldwater, who ran, of course, in 1964 against Lyndon Johnson, um, Goldwater didn't want to turn away any of the Birchers, but he couldn't stand them. He absolutely couldn't stand them. In fact, he told one of his uh, fellow politicians, who had asked him about the politician. He said, have you read The Politician? Goldwater said, I have a copy and I burned it. And I would suggest that you do the same. Burn every copy you find because it will ruin you politically. They're worried about the kooks and the fringies coming into the party. But yet he doesn't want to turn them away because he needs their vote. And a lot of these folks are coming in and supporting Goldwater. Uh, Robert Welch, the Burt's president, supports Barry Goldwater. But yet Goldwater doesn't support Welch. William Buckley, this, this up and coming mainstream conservative, extremely conservative uh, writer for the National Review, he can't stand Robert Welch. He calls Welch a, one of the loonies, right? So 
the birch people are getting pushed out into the uh, fringes. Ronald Reagan's another one, very conservative, and he too has some um, reservations about the birch people because of what they've said about Eisenhower and because of what they said about the civil rights movement. And they think this is bad for the party. And so, um, so Benson, uh, he, uh, I wanna be clear on something that in 1964, uh, the same year that the Civil Rights Act is passed and then the Voting Rights Act is passed the following year in 65, it splits the Republican party. You get people like uh, Barry Goldwater and his supporters um, who oppose civil rights because they're afraid that it'll create a federal bureaucracy to enforce it. They oppose it on federal reasons, right? Let the states handle these kinds of things, not the feds. And then you get guys like Nelson Rockefeller, who was the candidate in 1960. You get guys like Dick Nixon, they support civil rights. A guy named George Romney, a Mormon, the father of Mitt Romney, they support civil rights. So you've got, you've got prominent Republicans in 64 who support it and you've got prominent Republicans in 64 who oppose it. And then you get guys on the fringes like Benson, who, who, who's with Goldwater, he doesn't, he doesn't support the federal bureaucracy, but he takes it a step further. And he says, not only do I oppose civil rights, but it's communist led, it's communist inspired. Goldwater never said that, didn't believe that. Although he opposed it, but not for the same reasons as Benson and the Bergers. And that's a huge distinction. And so by 68, not to be too pedantic here with your listeners, but by 68, the Republican party recognizes that they're not gonna win in national political circles unless they support civil rights. And so by 68, when the Republican party reluctantly agrees, uh, at least some of them reluctantly agrees to support civil rights as part of their party platform, um, that pushes Benson out. He's now without a home and the Birchers are now without a home. And so Benson under the Birchers um, influence, they, uh, they invite him to run on a secret ticket with Strom Thurmond. And Strom Thurmond, as you noted, was a former Democrat he was also a, me a member of the Dixiecrats in 1948. And in this case, and then he becomes a Republican and they want um, uh, Strom Thurmond and Ezra Taft Benson to run in 1968. Benson will be the president and Strom Thurmond will be his vice president. Thurmond was always lukewarm about this. He had just been reelected. He just wasn't interested. I think he thought that there's no way this ticket will go anywhere. And um, so they formed this secret group in Appleton, Wisconsin and they call it the Committee of 1776. They're going to restore the revolutionary principles to the nation. But the committee, notice what they, what they did identify themselves as, the, the Birch Society. By 1968 or 1966 or so, the Birch Society was falling out of favor everywhere in the country. I mean, Barry Goldwater was now denouncing them. Ronald Reagan had said some bad things about them. You know, the Eisenhower stuff, the stuff they'd said about blacks and the civil rights movement. And so, um, so they, they, they're, they're quiet about what's going on, but the person who's the chairman of it is a guy named William Greedy, who is a high ranking member of the Birch Society. And the only reason why they didn't put Robert Welch as the chairman is because that would have been way too obvious that the Birch Society was behind it. So they put this obscure fellow, um, Bircher named William Greedy, but uh, Robert Welch would meet with Benson in Salt Lake and they would work out policy positions as part of their platform. He would fly to Salt Lake. Anyway, the Birchers are behind the Committee of 1776. 
The Birchers on the committee, they know that it's controversial. They know that Benson, um, they, they, they uh, circulated a secret memo, a private memo among themselves. And they say that we've got a problem with a Benson ticket. We've got um, Benson whose church opposes black people as part of the theology, keeping out blacks from being priests. That'll change in 1978. But at the time, blacks could not hold the priesthood in the Mormon church. And they recognized that that would be a problem, especially since they were being criticized for their position on civil rights. They said that Reed Benson would be a problem because of some of the flamboyant things he'd said about General Eisenhower in public, vis-a-vis -vis his position as a Burt Society employee. And they also said that um, Strom Thurmond would be a problem. <laughs> this is a guy that at that point had led the longest filibuster in US history. And of course, filibustering the civil, one of the civil rights acts. So it makes you wonder, you know, with all these problems, why the heck did they choose <laughs> these guys? But the, the, um, the presidential ticket collapses because of Thurman's lack of interest. Benson was far more into it than Thurman ever was. And Benson was the one working with the Birch people, not Thurman. So um, the ticket collapses and just about eight or nine months after in 1966, when the ticket collapses, um, Benson uh, accepts or wants to run as a vice presidential uh, on the ticket with a guy named George Wallace, who left the Democratic Party for similar reasons. He didn't like civil rights, where his party was going. This, he was a conservative Democrat. So they formed the American Independent Party, and Benson will be the vice president. Benson and his son Reed, they fly to Alabama in February of 1968. So think about the lateness of this hour, right? It's February of 68, and the election's in November. And they have a three-hour meeting. And Benson's, both Bensons are just taken in with George Wallace. They think he's a smart guy. He opposes civil rights. He opposes the welfare state. He opposes unions. He opposes federal aid to education. All the things that Benson supports, Wallace does too. And so they finished the meeting. Ezra writes, Robert Welsh is by this time a close friend. And he says, uh, he says, dear Bob, I just met with George Wallace. He's wonderful. He's a good man. Well, the problem is, is that um, Benson has to convince David O. McKay, the church, his boss, to allow him to run. McKay was extremely lukewarm about the ticket with Thurman. In fact, he hedged when McKay was asked, do you want Benson to run with Thurman? He said, well, it's too premature. Let's just see if it gets any traction, then come talk to me, which is kind of strange. Why do all the work if you're going to say no? But that's what he did. He was just sort of stalling. And uh, Benson's colleagues in the 12 didn't want him to run because in the 1950s, the church was under a spotlight and the church didn't look so good. And so they wanted him out of politics. Just focus on your ministry. Well, anyway, Benson felt this higher power to run. And what a better way to warn against communism and big government than to be on a presidential ticket. So Benson's always wanted to be the president and or at least on a ticket. And so uh, Knowing that McKay could be a holdup, Benson invites um, George Wallace to come to Salt Lake to meet with the church president. And Wallace, who's, who's kind of a slippery fellow, but he's a, he's a sort of a, a glib speaker. Um, he talks to the church president. He basically begs him, allow Elder Benson to run. We need him. He's a good man. The country needs him. And McKay says, no way just turns him down flat. 
And one of the biggest reasons why McKay turns him down is not just because of the embarrassment from the 50s, but also the fact that it's a third party. McKay recognizes this is fringy. You can't even get the party nomination with the Republican Party. This is embarrassing. And McKay is a proud, lifelong Republican. And the other reason why he turns him down is um, McKay says it's a civil rights era, right? Dr. King had recently passed away. The church is coming under heavy assault for its views on Blacks. And McKay just says, no way. You'll, you'll just bring more attention to our, our Negro policies, he calls it. I'm not going to support this. I should tell your readers, um, George Wallace was the governor of Alabama, was, was um, one of the biggest, most prominent segregationists of his era, along with Strom Thurmond. If you were to ask anybody in the 60s, name me two politicians who oppose civil rights and support segregation, they'd most likely tell you George Wallace and Strom Thurmond. And so that tells you a lot about who Benson wants to run with. But um, I'll just say this, um, one last thought on this topic, that the people that were supporting Wallace's presidency were the Ku Klux Klan, the Nazis, and the Birchers. And so President McKay was wise to keep Elder Benson off this ticket, because this is not, this is not what the church needs. They don't want to be associated with their apostles serving on a party that's supporting by the Klan, the Nazis, and the white citizens councils. It would have, it would have come back to bite the church in the fanny. So, you know, it's interesting, a lot of people don't realize in 1968, you know, George Wallace did end up running for president. Um, he carried many of the same states that Barry Goldwater carried in 64. There's an overlap there. And uh, so just to give a little education. I think he got was it about 14, 15% of the popular vote and then won some electoral votes uh, in the election. So he was not an insignificant figure and that was not an insignificant presidential run. Um, so we're running short on time here. I just have to, uh, first of all, Robert Welch, but this is our John Birch Society segment. So I feel like I got to kind of cram a few things in here. Um, Robert Welch made a quote in your books that Mormons make good birchers. Um, also, um, during this time in the 60s, Benson, and we'll, we'll actually talk about the general uh, conference stuff later, but he was giving um, speeches at general conference because he, not only was he talking to dental conventions, but he was also talking about secret combinations and the white horse prophecy during these things. And so do you think that those type of those things kind of laid the groundwork, those beliefs like the secret combinations and the white horse prophecy, were those things that would have influenced Mormons to kind of become good birchers as Robert Welch uh, said? Well, I think yes, yes, but there's probably a little bit more to it. Um, Mormons are conservative by and large. Um, the church was founded in the Intermountain West. These are farming communities back in the 19th century. This isn't to say that everybody's always been conservative in the church. Um, the church had some very prominent liberal uh, suffragists, for example, in the early 20th century. Um, and there were some liberals um, in leadership. But by and large, in the 20th century, the church would start to slowly morph towards the Republican Party. And they supported, I, I want to be clear on something, the church in Utah, anyway, supports Franklin Roosevelt. Um, they support the New Deal. They, they need government assistance like any other person in the United States. And uh, they support Eisenhower, but they also support Lyndon Johnson. So they're going back and forth for a little bit in, this, in the 50s and 60s. But by the early 1970s, they support Utah's, Utah Mormons support Nixon, and they never turn back from the, from the Republican Party. And that's been that way ever since. 
And um, in part because Benson always said that you can't be a good Mormon and a good Democrat. But all, it's also part because Mormons agree with the Republican Party's stance against civil rights because the Mormon church opposed civil rights for so many years and also against big government and high taxes and ERA and abortion. So a lot of the things that really um, uh, helped to set a foundation for, the, for evangelicals in the 1970s that made it possible for them to thrust Ronald Reagan into office in 1980, uh, Mormons are right there lock, stock and barrel with them. I mean, you wouldn't even know if you took out the word Mormon or evangelical on some kind of you know, sermon or talk that an evangelical minister would give, it'd be the same talk a Mormon would give about high taxes and big government and abortion and civil rights. They're, they're, they're linking arms in many respects. Anyway, um, so Robert Welsh is, um, by this point in the 60s, this is really, I think, important to, to point this out. He's not only becoming more controversial nationally in the 1960s. I mean, it sort of blows it open with William Buckley writing these horrible things about the Birchers. And it's so he's, they're coming under assault. There's no doubt about it. And Robert Welsh recognizes that Elder Benson can help to rehabilitate their tarnished, his, the Birchers' tarnished image. And Benson, of course, recognizes the Birch Society can help him fill his apostolic mission to warn against big government. So Welch and, and Benson form this common worldview. And they're also friends. They really genuinely like each other. And some of their letters are really endearing. I mean, Benson would write him a letter, you know, dear Bob, what are you doing today? And Bob would write back, dear Ezra, I'm sure you wouldn't approve this, but I'm working on the Sabbath. And uh, Robert Welch was a Catholic and he admittedly wasn't a very good Catholic. Um, but anyway, so they have this common worldview about big government and they both need each other. And Welch recognizes that, the, that he himself as a political candidate would never work. He's too controversial. But Benson could work because of his stature uh, with the Eisenhower administration. But um, I'll say this about the Birch Society since, since we're talking about this segment, is that it wasn't just Eisenhower that got the Birchers in trouble. It was they had a number of people like Nazis and white citizens council members and segregationists. They were forming the ranks of the Birch Society. And um, so mainstream Republicans and of course liberals and Democrats and just everybody in between, they, they started to call the Birchers racists. In some of their, their um, journals that I've seen, the New American Magazine or the American Opinion, uh, there was one article I read that called Blacks, Pigs and Dogs. And so when some people say, oh, they're not racist, I mean, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Pigs and dogs. And then they're, they're constantly supporting politicians like Strom Thurmond and George Wallace, and they're promoting segregation. They're calling Dr. King a communist. I don't know how anyone with a straight face could say that's not racist, right? They also, um, I wanna say something true. I know I'm being a little forthright here, but um, one of the things the Birches did was they had uh, in 1958, when Martin Luther King had gone to a special school to train how to be a civil rights protester. It's called the Highlander School in Montego, Tennessee. And this young, recently graduated PhD in theology from Boston University, Martin Luther King, this younger man, he hasn't really hit his stride yet as a famous preacher, but he goes there. And um, there's a photographer who's a Klansman who shows up. 
And he's trying to, he takes a, a picture of the group and Martin King is sitting next to a former member of the Communist Party. He's never met this guy before. He has no idea who he is. And remember what I said a minute ago about why I'm not defending communism. I, I think it's ridiculous, to be honest, my personal beliefs. But, but that's why a lot of people in the 30s were embracing communism is because of capitalism's failures or perceived failures. And so this guy sitting next to Benson was a member of the Communist Party back in the 30s, but he was no longer a communist in 1958. We have him on record. And anyway, so this Klansman takes this picture and the Birch people just run with this picture to the nth degree. They put, they put a picture of, I wish I had to show your, your viewers, but it's a picture of King in this picture, this school. They're learning how to be um, activists to protest segregation and to advance civil rights. And um, the Birchers will, will take this picture and blow it up and put it on billboards across the United States. They'll put it in their magazines, they'll send it to politicians. And this is all proof, of course, that communists have infiltrated the civil rights movement. And uh, while we're at it, I can say two more things. That um, critics of the, the, the uh, uh, who say the king is a communist, they'll talk about two people in his inner circle. And they're right about this. These are two people who are indeed in his inner circle. One's Baird Rustin, a black gay man. And the other one is a guy named uh, Stanley Levinson. And I say black gay man because he's got two strikes against him, right? He's gay in the 50s and he's black. Oh, three strikes. And he was a he's former member of the Communist Party. And you've got Stanford Levinson, who was also a former member of the Communist Party. That's true. They were former members of the Communist Party. The operative word is former. And King, Dr. King had been warned by people. Look, the Birchers, Hoover, they're saying that you're a communist because you've got Levinson and Baird Rustin you're hanging out with. You got to drop these guys. So some of Dr. King's closest advisors say, get rid of these guys. And King's response is, why would I do that? They're good at what they do. We need them. They no longer affiliate with the party. They told me they don't. And, um, and Hoover has them on record, by the way, from FBI wiretaps that he knows they're not commies, but he feels threatened by Dr. King. And Ezra Taft Benson is caught up in this too. He too circulates this Highlander folk school in a picture of Dr. King sitting next to the commie, the alleged commie. And he sends it to the BYU president, Ernest Wilkinson, one of his closest friends. He sends it to uh, people in the church leadership. And this is all proof that the civil rights movement has been fomented by commies because Dr. King is now sitting next to a guy who happened to be a former member of the party. It's they're just smearing and tarnishing his reputation. So we're running a little late, but I, I have to put a bow on this. Uh, I think it's important to include it in this particular episode. So, and, and this is actually something I don't think you've ever revealed to anybody before, but basically uh, in order to do a lot of your research, you needed to get some uh, archival uh, material to study with. In other words, old John Birch uh, magazines and publications and everything like that. So you, it's not like you could just go to your local library and get these things. So you actually were in contact with the library at UCLA and they have a, a fairly large collection there. Um, and you asked for some old American opinion, Birch logs, and maybe some new Americans. And so they sent you those publications and uh, so you, they arrive and you look at them and what do you see? I look at them. Uh, so I, I, like you said, I tried to find, um, I, let me back up just for a quick second. 
I, uh, I got all of the letters from the former Birch president, a guy named John McManus, very nice man, um, told him about my family being Birchers, told him about my book with Jeff Benson. He knew Benson, knew him well, they were friends, and he was thrilled to give me all of his stuff. So I, I got the letters and he sent me the politician. So he's very generous. And, but I also wanted the published Birch writings that Benson always talked about and read. He was a frequent subscriber. And so I went to my library at Colorado State University Pueblo where I work and talked to the inner loan librarian. And I said, I need these, these Birch uh, magazines, the American Opinion, the New American, as you mentioned, and the Birch logs. Can you get them for me? He said, sure. So he went into a system, he pulled it up and he said, looks like UCLA is a lending library. They have it, we'll order it from them. I said, fine. About a week or two later, they big old bundle like this comes in and I, he gave it to me. I was in his office and I started to look at it like this and there are red underlinings everywhere and there are little writings in the margins that says, good point, brilliant, agreed. And I thought, damn, that looks familiar. It looks like Ezra Taft Benson's writing, but I couldn't prove it. And I looked further and then I started at the top right-hand part of the corner, it said ETB, ETB. He started to put his initials on various pages. I don't know why, but he did. So I had his personal copies of the, of the Birch literature. And I asked his grandson, I said, how did it end up in UCLA? And his grandson was intrigued. And he said, I don't know. Probably my father liked to give things away. He probably gave it to a Bircher Latter-day Saint from California and who probably just donated it to UCLA. But so I got uh, uh, Benson's personal copies of Birch literature. And it was really important to me as a scholar because I could see how certain passages influenced it. I grew up a Calvinist, you know, so, uh, perhaps you, it was a pre, you were preordained, you know, or something to have this happen. <laughs> foreordained. <laughs> yeah, you would say foreordained. We'd say preordained. It's pretty wild. It's, it's just insane. It blows my mind when you talked to, told me about that the other day. And I, and, and it's really cool that this is the first place that the public knows that you actually uh, were handling the very new Americans and, and American opinions that he was. And that's just so fortuitous, so cool. And I think that really kind of puts a bow on all this. So just uh, our little listeners, I know this is some great information. Uh, even if you're sympathetic, to, you're a member of the John Birch Society, this is history. He's got everything documented and you can check the footnotes yourself. And I think it's really important that, you know, if you're studying any subject and, and I'm doing this with restoration, I say you look at all perspectives. That's so important. So even the people that you admire, it's good to read the criticism of as well, because guess what? We're all human beings. We all have feet of clay and uh, you need to know the whole person. And then you really can get a better understanding of what motivated them and everything. So Matt, I wanna thank you. Uh, we're finishing off this segment. I'm really looking forward to our final segment. I just wanna remind our viewers to like and subscribe, uh, hit the uh, like button and leave your comments uh, underneath and also uh, ring the bell for a notification for our next episode. So Matt, thank you very much. And we will be talking to you again.